Mortimer, episode 15. Thank you for tuning into Mortimer, a book written by M.W. Cedars and narrated by Michael Drew. The theme music was written and performed by Danny Torgerson. Mortimer is an entire novel that you may decide to read in print or digital form. Yet each episode of this audio podcast is broken up into a serial of sorts for your enjoyment. We hope you enjoy this duty-free audio presentation of Mortimer. Hello, <laughs> this is Officer Orange. <laughs> well, I am a little nervous, but... I'm excited to announce that you are listening to the duty-free version of Mortimer by M.W. Cedars. Now remember to look both ways when you cross the street. The evening air was humid and heavy, but at least it was quiet. It was exactly what Lily Lou needed, after all the nonsense she'd endured. Things hadn't turned out the way she'd hoped. In fact, they were just the opposite. Mortimer had been beyond enchanting. As a result of being constantly smothered by all the single young women at the party, Lily Lou hadn't even had the opportunity to say one word to him. Her heart was broken. And then there was Herbert. She would never admit it out loud, but Herbert was her backup plan. If Mortimer never came round, heaven forbid, she'd marry Herbert. Her mother had told her that Herbert was a good match, as his father was in banking. Banking was always a compliment to a successful business. But Herbert was condescending, and until that evening he had seemed too interested. But now... Lily Lou sighed. What had gotten into him? Was Frank right? Was Herbert cross because Lily Lou hadn't encouraged him enough? But why the sudden change? One day he was chasing her down in the park, trying to convince her to go with him, Frank and Cindy to the city, while the next he was ignoring her and bringing another woman on their date. Lily Lou wandered the moonlight garden and slumped down at one of the tables. Mortimer didn't love her. Herbert didn't love her. She was sure to end up alone. Alone, bored and old. Then she heard a voice. How do you do? She looked up into the moonlight and saw the young man with the gorgeous red hair she had spotted earlier that evening. He was one of the few people at the party she didn't actually know. Hello. If her father caught her in the dark, alone and talking with another handsome stranger, he would likely lock her in a room until she was fifty. Have you tried the punch? He held out a glass. Lily Lou considered for a moment. Then, determining that the evening was a complete disaster anyway, she accepted the drink and smiled up at the stranger. Why not at least go out with a little excitement? May I be seated? Lily Lou gestured to the chair. By all means. He sat down beside her. I've been watching you all evening. Her pulse quickened. Excuse me? You are, by far, the prettiest lady I've ever seen. Lily Lou couldn't help but blush. Prettiest? Well, thank you. I'm Percy Binkley. His smile was sweet. What's your name? Uh, Lily Lou. Well, Lily Lou, what are you doing out here by yourself? Lily Lou surveyed him briefly for a moment. 
He was tall, somewhat lanky, and had a clear, youthful face. His carrot-coloured curls were greased back, and he looked handsome in his fashionable dark-suit coat. Though his demeanour was civilised, Lily Lou did not miss the glint of mischievousness in his bright green eyes. She shrugged, shaking off the feeling of warmth that had started to creep up her spine. I needed some air. I hate these formal things, he agreed as he lit a cigarette. Yes, all of these people dressing up, acting all proper. Lily Lou waved her hand in exasperation and took a long drink from the punch that Percy had brought her. It's exhausting and dreadfully boring. I'd rather be in the Wild West, fighting Indians or sailing a ship somewhere and seeing the world. Lily Lou tipped her head in interest. A ship? Why fault Indians travel through the rainforest and voyage to the open sea? Percy bragged. Have you? Percy puffed on the cigarette. I defeated pirates and fought outlaws while traveling on the open sea and in the desert and mountains. Then I cut my way through the rainforest with a knife so big you could see your face in it. What was your most memorable moment of your travels? Lady Lou asked wistfully. His life sounded like the stories that she'd read in school, adventure and excitement, the exact opposite of her life, trapped in boring old Georgetown. Did you meet beautiful women? Uh-huh. This question had to be a trap. Percy thought quickly. What about you? What do you want to do? I want to buy something from Tiffany and Company with my own money, Lily Lou announced. I want to go to another continent. I want to run outside and ruin a dress without being scolded. I want to fall in love and be whisked away from this wretched city. Lily Lou took another drink. Her head buzzed pleasantly. I know how you feel. My pa owns a tobacco farm in West Virginia. There was the catch. He wasn't even from the same state as she. Oblivious to Lily Lou's disappointment, Percy took another drag and continued on. He wants me to take over the farm one day, but I don't know, he cleared his throat. I do not know. Do not know what? What do you mean? You said your daddy owns a tobacco farm and, and, and you said you didn't know. Oh, Percy flicked ashes into the grass. I don't know if I want to be a farmer. The more Percy talked with the beautiful Lily Lou, the more flustered he became. The more flustered he was, the more the refined dialect that Mrs. Dixon had carefully programmed in him with the help of tortuous buckets of ice and mouthfuls of soap left his brain. His ears burned with embarrassment as the pretty young girl looked at him curiously. Lily Lou watched as his refined appearance degraded and his ears reddened. This whole thing, she gestured toward him, it's an act, isn't it? What do you mean? His ears burned even hotter. I have no idea what you're talking about. Well, all the travelling, adventures, fighting. Lily Lou finished her punch and then leaned forward. It's all an act. You're just some country bumpkin visiting and putting on a show. You better watch it. Don't be so sensitive. Lily Lou met his gaze. I know what it is to put on an act. To try to pretend to be someone you're not. Percy was sceptical. Yeah? Yes. Excitement rose in her voice. Do you really want to leave West Virginia and see the world? Was Mrs. O'Leary's cow framed? Percy burst out. When his response rendered a confused look, Percy cleared his throat. Yeah, I want to get away. I'm in trouble at school, despite high marks. 
They're threatening to ship me off somewhere. My ma treats me like a baby, and my pa well, makes me shovel shit. Oh, I've definitely a mind to get out of town. His answer was rewarded by Lily Lou's smile. She leaned forward and lowered her voice. Then I have an idea. For fear of his nanny's wrath, Mortimer crammed the sugar cookie between his lips and chewed with precision to avoid making a mess on his newly trimmed beard and moustache. Mrs. Dixon promised him that if he behaved during the training at the party that he would be able to tour the Esquire before it left Georgetown. But as the night wore on, Mortimer realised that the tour hours had long ago ended for the evening. Coincidentally, his motivation for good behaviour began to correspondingly decline. He felt a gurgle in his stomach, and yet another food item was deposited. This was followed by a pleasant release, and Mortimer determined that it was time to vacate the room. Pondering his unfortunate circumstances, Mortimer exited the cigar lounge, where men were beginning to hack and cough. His bottle-boat replica was incomplete. The very thought of never properly meeting her mistress face to face was absolutely devastating to Mortimer. He had to think of a way to escape to the dock before dawn. He had to have just one last look at her beautiful bounty before she set sail. Contemplating his options, Mortimer wound his way down the mansion halls to the lounge. Perhaps there were more of those delicious kebabs being served somewhere. He licked the crumbs off his fingers as he wandered. Perhaps he'd hitchhike to the harbour again, and then he would board her deck. Mortimer trembled as he imagined climbing upon the bountiful boards and seeing her alone in all her sensual vulnerability. Yes, Mortimer decided, he had to see her one last time. Only then could he have closure, examine the last remaining piece, and complete his project. Finally, he would earn the most esteemed and austere title attainable in this season of man, the title of Admiral. And then he would say adieu, and her mistress would set sail upon the glorious waters to be gone from his presence and gone from the docks at Winya Bay forever. Millie was making rounds with the pies. Mr. Bartholomew was seated on a sofa with his wife and their daughter, Hilda. She was wearing a pair of thick spectacles and drew furiously on a notepad that was open in her lap. Martima, look, Hilda enjoys drawing too. Mrs. Dixon was by Mortimer's side the moment he entered the room. Is that my mother? Mortimer's eyes all but bugged out as he looked across the room to see Mrs. Iscariot chatting amiably to the group of fascinated people. Yes, darling, your mother has been away on holiday for quite some time. She arrived home not even an hour ago. Mortimer snorted. A psychiatric holiday hardly substantiates her departure from psychological sanity. Mrs. Dixon forced herself to laugh and shot a worried glance at the Bartholomews who were looking up at Mortimer from the sofa, their expressions displaying uncensored shock. He missed her terribly, and she him, Mrs. Dixon explained. He is referring to the depression a dear mother and son experience when being away from each other for long periods of time. Mrs. Dixon pinched Mortimer on the arm. What has gotten into you? she hissed. We made a bargain. Mortimer's referring to the agreement that if he behaved during his training and at the party, that Mrs. Dixon would take him to see the Esquire. This is not the time. 
Mr. Iscariot, I'm sure you're delighted for your mother to be home, Mrs. Bartholomew piped up. Mortimer MacLeod silently passed his nose and bushy moustache at the family below him. Mrs. Dixon, Neville approached them and bowed curtly. The Wilsons are taking their leave. But Millie is coming in with the second round of pies. They have assured me that their cocker spaniel needs to be relieved. Neville informed Mrs. Dixon. I see, Mrs. Dixon looked at her squire nervously. If you will excuse me, before turning away, she touched Mortimer's sleeve. Mortimer, dearest, do tell Hilda about your drawings. I am sure that you two shall have much to talk about. As his nanny and butler moved away through the crowd, Mortimer stood awkwardly. Mrs. Bartholomew elbowed her husband. He's making an effort. Shake his hand. With a growl, the rotund man leaned forward and then rocked back. He leaned forward again and then rocked back. Finally, with a helpful push from his wife, Mr. Bartholomew shot up from the Moroccan sofa. Millie entered the room holding a pie, just in time to see Mr. Bartholomew come nose to nose with Mortimer. "'My God!' Mortimer cried out. Millie had to think quickly. She dashed behind Mortimer just as he took a breath to launch into what was likely going to be a tirade of insults and inane comments relating to massively large dogs and halitosis. In a combination of blind desperation and ingenuity, she took the pie server and jabbed it into Mortimer's buttock. Oof! Mortimer whirled around, and Millie allowed herself to fall into his arms, holding the pie safely and quite triumphantly in the air. Mortimer, thank you. You saved the pie. Millie burst out as the now silent room stared at her. Mrs. Dixon rushed back into the lounge. What happened? What was that noise? Mrs. Bartholomew clapped her hands together. Your maid tripped. Mortimer caught her and saved the pie. Oh! Some of the nearby ladies started to swoon. Helen, who had come as Herbert's date, but who had spent the entire evening with her pack of lady friends, joined in the applause. Oh, my! Mrs. Dixon narrowed her eyes at Millie. Well, thank you, Mortimer. She joined in with Mrs. Bartholomew clapping, and soon the entire room resonated with applause. He's so brave. He loves his nanny. He saved a man's life. Has incredible reflexes. Oh, what else can he do? He sailed the open sea and fought pirates, rescued a nun. Any woman would be lucky to marry Mortimer, Millie added. Thank you, thank you. Mortimer put his hand behind his back and bowed gracefully to the room. Your applause is appropriate and received with respect. Herbert had seen enough. Not only had he lost Lily Lou to this half-witted overgrown manatee, but Helen was an admirer too. What spell was it that Mortimer cast on the ladies? Herbert stood up. He glared at Frank, who was amongst a bevy of young beautiful women, and haughtily removed himself from the room. There was coffee set up in the dining room. Herbert needed a stiff cup of black. Maybe that would put him in a better state of mind. He headed down the hall. The room was spinning in circles and John scratched his head. Hadn't he just gone through that stack of papers? He probably shouldn't have had so much liquor if he was going to be conducting a search. Well, at least he still had time. John ignored the mess he was making and pulled out drawers to search them one by one. In case his letter had gone missing, John had cleverly made another copy of his contract in hopes that during the party he would find a time to speak with Mortimer alone and persuade him to sign. However, 
Seeing as Mortimer was about as popular as the Queen of England, his chances of getting a signature were slim to none. His backup plan of getting Ellie to sign had been torn to shreds when for the first time in almost six years she was actually making sense. In fact, she was just as terrifying as she had been back when Gerard had married her. As a result, John had pretty much steered clear of her. Pushing a stack of mail to the side, he caused some papers to flutter onto the ornate, richly woven rug that his brother had imported from India. He didn't notice that one of them was the very letter that he had written containing the contract under the guise of the Bottle Boat Club of Chicago. If only he could find that pesky certificate of ownership, then Plan C would not be necessary. It has to be here somewhere. John staggered backwards and looked around the room. The colours blurred, and he caught the chair between his hands, diverting a fall onto the floor. Maybe that old bastard has hidden it behind a painting. John went to work, pulling art off the walls of Girard's study. A sudden noise caused John's head to jerk up and see the meddling Iscariot butler standing in the doorway. Can I help you? Neville asked. He sounded bored, but his expression was stern. No, I'm as good as a virgin bride, John snorted at his joke. Virgin, ha <laughs> Neville was not amused. Uh, that statement made absolutely no logical sense. Neville walked a step into the room and opened the door a bit wider. Unfortunately, I cannot permit you to be rummaging around in this part of the house. Rummaging? John was aghast. Rummaging? Is this what rummaging looks like? John leaned down on the desk for support as he staggered around the chair. I was riding an oat for Mortimer. I've a card for him in my pocket, you see. Mr. Iscariot, you are drunk. No, no, just a little foggy in that old head. John staggered toward Neville. The old whistle grower, whistle blower, whistle... Oh. Yes, indeed, Neville rolled his eyes, herding John from the office as he locked the door behind him. The ice cream truck had a better engine than Orange's crappy old Ford. He was sure he'd seen the crook take the truck toward the south of town, but he'd been driving for a full thirty minutes and he hadn't seen any signs of him. Boy, had he really messed this one up. And now, thanks to his absolute buffoonery, a bona fide convict was on the loose, driving recklessly around town in an ice cream truck. And what about the muffled voice he'd heard? Best to pretend that had never happened. He didn't want to be the one who let a kidnapper get away. Orange thought he'd be sick. But what if that old convict had a victim tied up behind the driver's bench? The voice had sounded feminine, and Orange had to let him go. Idiot! He slapped himself on the side of the head. You can drive yourself, no problem! Orange shouted into the darkness as he turned the patrol car around. Great job, Peter! Really did it this time! He continued to berate himself out loud as he made the drive of shame back into town. Orange had a brilliant idea that scared him a little. Okay, it scared him a lot. This idea was likely to cost him his job and whatever else he had left in this godforsaken world. It would all melt away like the ice cream in the back of that truck. Unless. Only those truly committed to securing Mortimer as their daughter's husband remained at the manor late into the evening hours. And the punch flowed. Mrs. Iscariot had disappeared from sight about an hour ago, probably talking to some guests that were having coffee in the dining room. 
Mr. Longhorn, his wife, and his mother were in the lounge having a pleasant conversation with the Lakesmith family. "'Our daughter is exceedingly skilled at needlepoint, as you can see by the piece she is presently working on,' Mrs. Lakesmith bragged. Milfred did not look up, but continued on with unassailable focus. "'If I ever attempted such a thing, I'd probably wind up sticking myself with the needle. <laughs> Mr. Longhorn was trying too hard to be friendly. The Lakesmith family was important in society, and he was determined to build a relationship with them. "'Such a fine lady. <laughs> Lily Lou had expressed great interest in learning more about Needlepoint.' Mr. Longhorn tried to draw the girl out. However, Milfred paid him no notice. She was threading another colour expertly into the needle before bending down and resuming sewing. "'Where is your daughter?' Mrs. Lakesmith asked. "'I haven't seen her in an hour, at least. I would very much like to hear about how school is going for her.' "'School is a waste of a female mind.' Milfred suddenly looked up at the adults around her. "'Women are selected based on a sufficient dowry and good breeding.' A "'Breeding?' The younger Mrs. Longhorn felt giddy in the head. "'She makes it sound like ladies are the same as puppies.' <laughs> she pitched into a fit of giggles, which triggered giggles from her mother-in-law. <laughs> "'My God, are you drunk?' Mrs. Lakesmith leaned forward and sniffed the air. "'I hardly see the amusement in such a claim.' Milfred was put off. "'Darling, I hardly expect the Longhorns to be engaging in solicitous behaviours such as drinking alcohol,' said Mr. Lakesmith in the lady's defence. Mr. Longhorn's eyes shifted over to his wife and mother. "'Let me have some of that punch.' "'Really? I always say.' Milfred raised her voice a bit more loudly to redirect the attention back to herself. The only purpose of an education is to compensate for a gross deficiency. Mr. Longhorn choked on his punch. Ha <laughs> ha, daughter has her opinions, Mr. Lakesmith laughed. Doesn't she, old man? He slapped a hand on Mr. Longhorn's back. And what's this I hear about a safari heading over to Africa? Ignoring the men's conversation, the elder Mrs. Longhorn reached for a glass of punch as Millie walked by with the tray. Here, yeah, Milfred. Have some punch. You look like you need it. I don't think that's a good idea, Mr. Longhorn argued, but Milfred had already taken the glass and was drinking greedily. Mrs. Longhorn grinned smugly at her son. In the dining room, Herbert watched Mrs. Iscariot, who was animatedly talking with a group of coffee drinkers. Indeed, I am absolutely certain that the fashion trends will be shifting again. Uh, back to the 1890s. You remember? The dresses had a longer cut and the waists were slim. Do you? A woman with a shingle haircut looked down at her dress, which was cut three inches below the knee. Atop her head was a cloche that she had been convinced was at the very height of fashion. She reached up to touch it nervously. Mrs. Iscariot lifted an ivory cigarette holder to her lips and, looking superciliously into the corner of the room as she took a thoughtful drag, "'Why, in Paris, the skirts have already begun to change. I was there recently myself.' "'Have they?' The woman looked at her friend with conviction. "'We must ask George to get us the latest magazines.' "'I thought we had the latest magazines,' her friend bristled. "'I have never seen fashion like yours before.' Mrs. Iscariot did not attempt to hide the condescension in her voice. "'But your dress is from five years ago, at least,' a brave woman in a bead-covered dress protested. 
Mrs. Iscariot turned to the voice and raised a sharp eyebrow. Five years ago, the skirts were wider and the women carried parasols. I can't keep up with what you ladies wear, interjected an amiable tuxedo bearer. And, of course, Paris is always at the forefront of fashion, the pixie-cut woman said hurriedly. Maybe fashion is repeating itself. It wouldn't be the first time, another concurred. The bead-covered woman eyed Mrs. Iscariot curiously. Herbert had heard enough. He went back to the table to get another refill of coffee. He plopped down on a chair and poured himself a cup. However, there was little more than several drops in the carafe. He whirled in his chair, just in time to see a man in a cold-coloured suit walk by. "'Hey, you!' the man hesitated in his trajectory. "'May I help you?' "'Don't you work here?' Herbert tapped the empty coffee canister with his pointer finger. Coffee's all out. I'll let the cook know. Herbert twisted back toward the table. He was exhausted, annoyed, and sufficiently disappointed. This party was a riot, to be sure, but he was unused to coming in second place. Why, even his most loyal friend Frank was ignoring him for more pleasant company. The music had picked up in the lounge, and his foot started to involuntarily tap. He was tired of being ignored. Snubbed by Helen dissed by Frank, and passed over by Lily Lou. Sure, he'd been trying to make her jealous by bringing Helen to the party, but he hadn't expected her to actually ignore him as a result. She had been missing for over an hour, and he was sure that by this time in the evening she would have been swooning at his feet, begging for him to marry her. He'd needed to do something wild, something to get the attention of those around him. As the idea turned in his head, Herbert couldn't help but smile for by the end of the evening he'd have every single person in the house's full attention. Woohoo! A young woman giggled as a well-groomed man sprung her onto the dance floor. Someone had turned the music up, and in no time the lounge was filled with the dancing and grooving of dozens of people partially aware of their own semi or full inebriation. The party was a hit. Gyrating on her seat, the older Mrs. Longhorn couldn't take it any more. Despite being the eldest person at the party, Mrs. Longhorn figured she could kick up some dust with the best of them. She stumbled across the swirling, shaking lounge room and sought out Mortimer Iscariot. Mortimer had been sandwiched on a teeny-tiny sofa between two chatty young girls. His size, in contrast to the women and the sofa, made him feel like Moby Dick's whale sitting on dollhouse furniture. His face was scrunched up and shone the colour of cherry tomato. Mrs. Longhorn grabbed his lapel and brought her face to his. Dance with me or suffer the consequences. She growled seductively. My lapel! Mortimer barked out. Yow! His voice was like a soprano's as she yanked him up with surprisingly brute strength. The music was kicking. The trumpets were honking through the phonograph. Mrs. Longhorn felt the melodies cruising through her blood as she danced with animal-esque enthusiasm. Mortimer stood awkwardly, his moustache twitching involuntarily as she pressed her finger against his nose and danced in circles in front of him. More guests began to join them on the dance floor, each moving with a combination of vigour and passion. Some climbed on tables, others were spinning and dipping on the carpeted lounge floors. "'Woo-wee!' Bobby Sue punched Jeb in the left cheek. His head recoiled backwards. "'Oh, baby, that's what I'm a-talking about!' He crooned joyfully. Then he grabbed her ample hips and started to swivel his body like a spinning top. "'Yee-haw!' 
The other dancers shrieked with laughter at Jeb's ridiculous and risque dance moves, and with whoops and screams others started to join in the insanity. Mrs. Longhorn clapped from the couch and tugged on her husband's sleeve to get his attention. Turn it up! Yahaha! Mortimer's eyes widened. Suddenly, and quite surprisingly inspired by the music and his soon-to-be encounter with her mistress, he looked about the deck of the ship, delighted at what he saw. The rich melodies of the ocean tossed the boat back and forth, and the air was salty and thick. The wind whirled around him, forcing him into a spin. He lifted his leg and allowed her to move his body across the deck floors. He tipped his head back and indulged in the cadence. A dance intended only for himself and her mistress. The melody changed, and he bowed once more in her honour. In response to his gesture of amour, she sent a massive splash of wet sea foam into the air. "'To you I dedicate this dance!' Mortimer put his tree-trunk arms over his head and started to sway his hips in circles. "'Wee!' cried Mrs. Longhorn as the young man moved into another pirouette. She flung her cup of punch into the air and the entire room filled with applause and shrieks. Mrs. Dixon, Mrs. Peabody and Millie stood in the doorway and stared at the room in stunned silence. Even Milfred who for the past several hours had only moved deft hands in pursuit of another flawless needlepoint, started tapping her foot. "'What has gotten into these people?' Mrs. Peabody was shocked at the uncouth behaviour of the aristocratic southerners. "'And who is Mortimer bowing to?' Mrs. Dixon's mouth was hanging open, and she shook her head slowly. "'If I didn't know better, I'd have thought that all of our guests were drunk out of their minds.' "'Oh, Elizabeth, do you think so?' Mrs. Dixon glanced over at her friends. "'I'm going to do a quick round. You keep your eye on this room.' Mrs. Peabody nodded, making the shape of a cross in front of her chest. Holding a white tapered candlestick in his left hand, he used the right to dig through Mrs. Iscariot's drawers. John had never seen so many silken panties in all his life. The contract had to be here. He demolished Gerard's office and rummaged through the kitchen with no luck. Now he was elbow-deep in panties, hoping the old bastard had given the certificate to his wife to keep safe. He dug with vigour and arrived at a particularly enticing pair of underwear. The fabric was so soft. Why didn't men get to wear things like this? John's ears buzzed and he found himself rubbing the silken fabric against his cheek. "'What in God's name are you doing?' John started and dropped the candlestick to the ground. He was left in darkness as the flame went out. He dove blindly and crawled across the floor in an attempt to hide. The overhead light in the bedroom suddenly blinded John, and he turned to notice Mrs. Dixon standing in the doorway, glowering at him. "'John Adams Ascariot, you bulbous moronic pervert! Stand up this instant or I am going to call the police!' "'I'm not here.' John spoke in a woman's voice. Get out of this room this instant! John shot up, grinning drunkenly at Mrs. Dixon. She was fuming. She looked so pretty when she was angry. I'm lost in my left shoe. John looked down at his feet. Can you help me find it? Mrs. Dixon stormed into the bedroom and grabbed John by the ear. Get Mrs. Ascariot's underwear off your head! Oh, how did it get there? <laughs> John giggled. He allowed the fiery nanny to drag him from the room. I've had enough of your antics, John. 
Wow, you know you like it, John was enamored. I keep your life entertaining. You are out of your mind. Mrs. Dixon shoved him into the hall and closed the door to the bedroom. I'm drunk, yes, but I'm not the only one who's out of her mind. Ah! Mrs. Dixon suppressed the urge to punch the imbecile right in his grinning mouth. If I catch you snooping in another room, so help me God! Learn more at www.mortimerbook.com. Copyright 2022, M.W. Cedars. Written by M.W. Cedars, the author's pseudonym, audiobook performance by Michael Drew. Neither this author nor affiliates, comrades, patriots, or associates are engaged in rendering professional or non-professional advice, services, recommendations, or any other suggestions of any kind to the individual reader. This book is purely fiction, and all opinions and all likenesses of characters, industries, cities, or associations with any place or anyone you know are purely coincidental. Thank you for subscribing to Mortimer, a book written by M.W. Cedars and narrated by Michael Drew. The theme music was written and performed by Danny Torgerson. Be sure to download the next episode. <laughs>